going to dive straight in to part two of a series we launched last week called Love First. Somebody say, Love First. Love First because he first loved us. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this morning from a passage of Scripture that all, almost all of you will be familiar with if you've ever been to a wedding all right, because everybody uses this passage, this scripture at weddings, but this is far more than a wedding scripture, um, and we're going to dive into it. It's, a, it's from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, uh, and it's in chapter 13 of that letter, and I'm going to read it out to you. It says this, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have, somebody say love, but I don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging Symbol. He said, look, it's, it's like I, I'm, a mel- I'm, I'm a symphony without a melody if I don't have love. I'm like thunder, but there's no lightning if I don't have love. He's saying I'm making noise, but I'm not accomplishing anything if I don't have love. Verse 2 says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries, and if I have all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have, I have nothing. I am nothing. I've got power, but no purpose. If I don't have love. Verse 3 says, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. He said, I might, I might be able to give money, but I have no mission. I don't know what it's for. I sacrifice, but it's for selfish motives. I don't, if it's not out of love, it's nothing. I'm nothing. And then it gets right down into the nitty-gritty and tells us what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Man, they had to put that in there, didn't they? <laughs> some, some people are historical thinkers. Do you know what historical thinkers is? This is not my notes. Anybody who's ever been to, like, you know, uh, a counselor will know. Some people are historical thinkers. That means they line up all of the things that they ever thought about everything that aggrieved them, right? And they got them all in a row and they got them all figured out and they keep them all together. That's called keeping a record of wrongs. Nobody here does that, amen? Right. Stop. I see people like looking, looking, glancing, like, anyway. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're gonna keep going. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love trusts, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Veers, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, when the whole thing comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, he said, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned. Like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Did you know God knows you fully and completely and wholly? I mean 100%. He knows every thought in your mind. He knows every little issue, idea, everything that you've ever thought, said, or done. He knows it all, and he still loves you. That's a, that's a sermon right there. To be fully known and fully loved, man, that'll change your life if you get that. 
to be fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, amen. Hope, yep, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of faith, hope, and love is is love. Today, for the next few moments, I want to preach on the subject, what's your motive? What's your motive? Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You know us completely. You know us wholly. And yet you love us completely and unconditionally. And that humbles us and that makes us so happy and so thankful because we know ourselves too. And we know the parts of ourselves that are unworthy of your love. And yet we receive your love and your grace and your mercy. And I pray that each and every one of us here today, if they get nothing else, if we get nothing else, we will know that we are wholly and completely loved by you. Deeply, all the way through, through and through, completely loved by you. We receive your love today. We thank you. And we ask, Lord God, that you would train us and teach us to love like you love. To love you like you love us. To love others as we love ourselves. Teach us, God, to love like you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Your motives, your motives. What's your motive? I'm, uh, I'm going to use a, a, a legal illustration this morning. And I happen to run into some lawyers and law students on the way in to the lobby. So I got to get this right because I know that, you know, they will be sending me emails if I don't get it exactly right today. There's a, there's a legal concept. Uh, if you're in a court of law and you're being tried for a crime, there's two major elements that have to be proven by the prosecutor. The first major element is called actus reus. Actus reus. It's a Latin term that means guilty act. You did the thing that the prosecutor says you did, right? They've got to prove that if you're in a court of law, and I say you, but let's, talk, let's pretend we're talking about somebody else, some other person, some defendant, they've got to prove that the defendant actually did the thing that is at issue in the case. In other words, is, did that person actually go, break into that house? Did that person pull the trigger? Did that person Actually, was that the person that sped down the highway in the vehicle before it crashed, right? Actus reus. Did they do the thing that they are being accused of doing? Guilty act. But there's a second element that's a little more difficult to prove. Actus reus can be proven by, you can have DNA evidence, you can have video surveillance, you can have eyewitness testimony, you can have confession. A prosecutor is going to look at all that to figure out if this defendant is the person who committed the act. But the second element, which is harder to determine, is called mens rea. Mens rea. And mens rea means guilty mind. Which, which is meant by that, did this person intend to do the thing that they are doing, right? So did they, have a, did they have a guilty mind? Did they have a culpable mind when they did the thing? In other words, let's say that somebody is uh, being uh, prosecuted for breaking into your house, right? And, and, and the prosecution can prove this is the person that broke into your house because we've got them on your little nest video, right? And we can see their face and they walked into the house, right? But then they come back at the defense and say, yeah, but I thought it was my house because I live right next door, right? So what they're saying is, I did the actus reus, I did the culpable act, but I didn't have the mens rea, I didn't have the guilty mind. I, it was an accident. I didn't do it on purpose, right? And so the prosecutor, prosecutor has to actually prove that they not only did the thing, but that they intended to do the thing and that they intended to do it in a culpable way. 
meaning they either, they either did it negligently or they did it recklessly or they did it uh, intentionally and willfully, right? Or they had a premeditated desire to harm and they actually harmed. So they've got to prove two things, actus reus and mens rea. There was a famous case uh, recently, and there have been a few of these throughout history, but a famous case recently where um, there was, it was a homicide case and the defendant had killed his roommate. And everybody knew that that, that happened. It was, a, it was verifiable and it was known that he committed the actus reus. But he raised the defense. He said, yes, I did kill my roommate, but I was sleepwalking and I was asleep. And so I didn't have the, I didn't have the mens rea. I didn't have the culpable mind. I, I did the act, but I didn't have the culpable mind. Well, the jury didn't actually believe him. And they said, we think you probably weren't sleepwalking. There was a case many, many years ago in Canada where that defense worked. Um, but that's Canada. So, um, all right, no. Um, so what, what, what the court of law is saying and what the scripture is saying in this passage is your motives matter. It's not just your actions that matter, but your motives matter. There's what you are, your why is important. Why are you doing what you're doing? It's not just what you're doing, it's what's driving what you're doing, right? So your motives matter in many, many ways. My motives matter in many ways. My motives matter to other people because other people have to assess my motives to determine whether or not that I'm acting in a way that is genuinely seeking to benefit and help them or if my motives are self-serving and manipulative. Same with you. People are assessing your motives all the time, whether you know it or not. When you come and you're kind to somebody or generous, what they're going to do is they're going to look and go, why, why did he do that? Why did she do that? Right? What's now, and that's a dangerous game because you don't really know people's motives. But just know that people are doing that. Your motives matter to other people. Your motives matter to you as well because most of us here have a conscience, right? And when we violate our conscience, when we do things out of an ill will or ill motive, we notice that. We notice, that our, we notice in our own heart that we are doing something that is not right. And if we ignore our conscience for long enough, it will dramatically impact us, negatively impact us. It will harm us if we continue to violate our own conscience, right? What happens a lot of times is we first deceive, right? We try to deceive somebody else. We try to deceive them and let them think that we're doing something that we're not doing. And if we do that long enough, we end up in what's called a state of denial. So now we're trying to deceive ourselves. And if we do that long enough, we end up in what's called a state of delusion, we have just completely lost the thread. We've lost track of reality because we are, we are in a state of denial. So our motives matter to us because most of us, down in our heart of hearts, we want to do right. We want to do the right thing. We long to do the right thing. And when we stop doing the right thing, when we fail to do the right thing enough times, then we start losing trust in ourselves. Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? So we, 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 our motives matter to other people. Our motives matter to us. But most importantly for today, our motives matter to God. Because when God looks at us, he sees the outside. It's not like he can't see us. But his eyes go straight to the inner part of our heart. Scripture says man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. When I go get a physical, my annual physical every year, the doctor will examine the outside. He'll look in my eyes, look in my ear, look in my, my mouth. He'll t- tap my knee, right, to see if I have reflexes. Like, he's look, he asks me, how you doing? And he can, he can kind of assess a certain aspect of my life from just externally. 
But then he sends me down to the lab and he says, I want you to go get your blood drawn because I want to see what's going on on the inside. When God looks at us, he's saying, I want to know not only what's going on on the outside. I'm not as interested in your performance as I am interested in the authenticity of your soul. Because I'm looking at your heart. I'm looking at your motive. So what's your motive? Because your motive matters. So what I want to do is take a few moments and I want to get into this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. And I want us to explore what he's actually really saying and what the implications are for your life and for my life. And I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. If you'll take this sermon seriously today, this sermon has wrecked me this week because it is one thing to be able to preach about things that, you know, that you don't struggle with. But it's another thing when you start preaching about motives and then you start realizing that in certain instances, in certain situations, your motives might not always be the purest, right? My one consolation is that I'm, in, I'm with a group of people who also know they're sinners. Amen, somebody. Okay? And my other consolation is this. Jesus loves us even when we aren't correctly and properly loving him. Right? He's still pursuing us, and he's going, hey, let me reach out to you even now. Right? So, so I want this. My prayer is that this sermon hits you as hard as it hit me this week. Amen, somebody? Unless you are totally perfect and righteous, this sermon should get you in the way it got me. Amen. So let's go back. It says this. If I speak, verse uh, 1, in the, in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a, a resounding gong, a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Here's what he's saying. I summarize this for us. Right action plus wrong motive equals nothing. I'm not great at math, but that was my best attempt at a math equation summarizing that passage. In other words, when we do good things, but we do them for the wrong reason, there's no spiritual value to what we've done. The reason the Apostle Paul wrote this is he's writing to a church in the city of Corinth, and this church had gotten fixated on spiritual gifts, but had forgotten the spiritual goal that the gifts were meant to achieve. They were, they were excited about all of the ability that they had to perform spiritual acts, but they forgot that, that their attitude was at least as important, if not more important, than the acts that they performed. They were excited. They were fixated on the power, but they had forgotten the purpose for which the power was given. The Holy Spirit was given in order to strengthen and edify and build up the body, and they were more excited about, look what I can do with my spiritual abilities. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, there's no value... There's no value to you when you do an act, even a good act, even a spiritually amazing act, when you do that with a wrong motive. Jesus called this out to his disciples. He said this in uh, Matthew 6. He said, be careful, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Now, just let me pause right there. Be careful not to practice your righteousness, right? In other words, if you don't know where he's going, you're going, wait a minute, you don't want me to do good things? He's like, no, no, I want you to do good things, but I want you to be careful not to do good things in front of others to be seen by them. So make sure that the good things that you're doing are not for the purpose of, being, of benefiting you, a self-serving motive. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven, right? He said, because your Father in heaven sees in secret and he rewards you openly. And then he pointed out the stuff that they were doing. He said, look, they're, they're, they're giving, and they're giving in a way that everybody knows they're giving. Hey, look how much I'm giving everybody. Right into the offering plate, right? Look what I'm giving, right? And fine, good, give, but don't do it for the purpose that everybody goes, hey, you're such a good giver, right? 
He said, they love to pray out on the streets. They love to come out on the streets and pray, and like, they, he said, like trumpets. They just like, da-da-da, look at me praying. Like, I'm just such a good prayer. He said, don't do that because that's, that's, you've gotten your reward. You've had people walk by and go, wow, what a righteous person. Okay, that's it. You're done. Right? There's no value to the prayer because you were doing it for selfish motives. So how do we apply that? Right? Because none of us are doing that. We're not out on the street trumpeting our prayers. But if I were to go and serve the homeless and the purpose for which I was serving the homeless was so that I could get a photograph to put it on Instagram, so that everybody would go, man, this guy is such a great guy. <laughs> I know we've never done this. Nobody's ever done this, right? Right? But then, then, then I've already gotten my reward. I've already gotten it. I got it the moment that I posted it because everybody went, oh, man, he must be so, so sweet. If I, if, I, if I preach a good message, which I try to do, I try my best. If I preach a good message, but it's not with the goal of edifying you and strengthening you and building you up, if it's for the goal of me advancing my career as a pastor... I'm toast. I'm busted. Jesus said that matters not at all. This is, where, this is why this sermon gets scary. Because he's talking, to relig- he's talking about religious leaders. He's talking about people that are actually publicly doing things that are righteous. And he's saying, just be careful of your motive. Right? If I, if I, if I go on Facebook and I support some worthy cause so that everybody goes, man, what a good person they are. And I just want to signal how good I am to everybody. And that's the reason I do that. Right, then I have no, no reward. So what's my motive? What's your motive? One of our primary values at One Family Church, and we teach this at Next Steps, um, and the, it's the first cultural value that we have. The first cultural value that we have at One Family Church is love first. Love first. Because what we want to be, what we want to do as a church, is we want to be a people who are motivated, animated, and catalyzed by love. Pure love. We want to be a people that everything we do is motivated by our love for the people that we're serving. Not motivated by our own desires, not motivated by our own selfish, uh, self-seeking desires, but motivated by the people that we serve. Now, let me, let, me, let me say to you what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, like, really, do, do motives matter that much? Do they really matter that much? Because, like, if I do something good... But I'm, getting, but I'm doing it for my purposes, but it still has some benef- beneficial purpose for the person to whom I did it, isn't that good enough, right? Like if I, if, in the Jesus picture, if, if I gave money and I did it for the purpose of me looking good, but the money was still for a good cause, I mean, isn't that good enough, right? How, how important are motives? How important are motives? Write this down if you're taking notes. You can be superficially effective and spiritually defective at the same time. Meaning that you can actually do good things, and they are good things. They're good things. The people who receive them are receiving a good thing from you, right? So it's not that they're receiving nothing good. It's just that you are receiving no spiritual benefit from the thing that you did. You notice how the phrase goes. It says, if I do all of this, I gain nothing. If I do all of this without love, I am nothing, right? So you can benefit other people if you have bad motives, but just know that the, the, that the bad motives will undermine your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself. We had a huge, at my old house um, over on Stanford, we had a big old oak tree right out in front of the yard. It was an awesome oak tree, big, great oak tree. And, and it served 
well. It brought shade over to our house and in the front yard. It was a beautiful, had shade, and then it had, uh, birds were making their nests, so it provided shelter, right? And you could look at it as you're driving down the street. It was gorgeous. The leaves were different colors and green and all different colors. So it had all of this external beauty. And one day my kids and I are playing out in the front yard. And I, I don't remember if we had swords or if we had, you know, something. Somebody either kicked or poked or something, the, the base of the tree, and it, and it just was soft. The base of the tree just went poof. And I went over and I kind of pushed my foot in there a little bit. And, and w- within a few seconds, I could feel that the hot, that the inside of the tree was hollow. This beautiful, external, strong-looking tree was rotten on the inside. And if we, ha- if we hadn't called the, the tree person, right, and they had, to, they had to come and cut the whole thing down, if they hadn't cut it down, then this tree that looked so beautiful and was providing so many benefits to so many of us would have eventually fallen and crushed somebody. It would have fallen on the street or it would have broken it. It would have smashed my house or my neighbor's house or something like that, right? And, and, and so Jesus says... You got to be careful about the external, right? Because eventually that's going to fall apart. Here's what he said to the, to the teachers of the law in uh, Matthew 23. He said, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So he said, listen to what they say, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. <laughs> he said, eventually it's going to fall, Right? They're there, they look good, they're doing, right? But if the motive isn't right, then it's going to be like an old oak tree that's rotten from the inside out. And eventually, you got to get out of the way because it's going to fall and crush you. I'm going to give him one more in the uh, same passage. He turns to the teachers of the law, and he says, woe to you. Now, you do not want Jesus saying woe to you. You don't want that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the but on the, are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus says, your motives matter. I hope this is hitting you the way it hit me. Is anybody feeling any kind of way right now? If not, then I want you to pause and just examine some of the motives that you've exhibited in certain aspects of your life from time to time. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? His own soul? Don't confuse effectiveness with authenticity. Don't confuse effectiveness. So how do I know if I'm being motivated by love? As I'm reading this, and this is chilling to me. I'm like, okay, God, you know, I need to be motivated by love. How do I know if I'm actually being motivated by love? Well, then he gets right into it. This is from verse 4, right? He said, here's what love looks like. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, well, sometimes I'm impatient. Sometimes I'm unkind. Sometimes I'm envious. Sometimes I'm boastful. Sometimes I'm proud. Sometimes I dishonor others. Sometimes I'm self-seeking. It says it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Well, sometimes I do that. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Do I always protect? Do I always trust? Do I always hope? Do I always persevere? Right? So there's a litmus test for whether or not we're motivated by love. It's right here. How well do you pass the litmus test? Here's my sermon. Here's my sermon note. The character of the fruit determines the flavor of the juice. (laughs) 
<laughs> In other words, you're going to see what you're made of once you're under the squeeze. You're going to see what's in your heart once there's a little pressure on it. We, we went to uh, New York City for our family vacation. We road tripped, and we, we, stayed, at, we stayed at 8th Avenue, 31st Street, which is right down near Times Square. And we, we would come down from our little, from our little room, um, and we had three beds in one room in that New York apartment, whatever that was. That was awesome. And we came down. We'd come down, and, man, there were all kinds of people on the street, vendors, uh, selling all kinds of stuff. Amen, somebody? Um, all kinds of stuff, right? My kids were like, is that, a, is, that a, uh, is that an ice cream truck? And I was like, that is not an ice cream truck. There's something else being sold out of that truck. Because um, I could smell it. Uh, so there were all kinds of people out there. There were people in funny costumes trying to get money. There were people without much costume on with guitars and stuff. So anyway, it was a crazy group of people. Um, but there was this one little lady. She was, like, right on the corner. She had a little cart, and, and she had bags of oranges around her, and she had one of those silver manual uh, orange presses. You know what I mean? And she had a little cutting board and a knife, and she would take these oranges, and she would cut them in half, and she would put it on that orange press, and she'd take your cup and put it on there, and she would squeeze it, and she'd do that maybe 10 oranges, and then she would just hand it to you. And it was just, like, pure, fresh, squeeze oranges. It was no additives, no flavorings, no preservatives, just pure orange juice coming out of that, right? Because that's what happens when you squeeze an orange. You get the pure orange juice. If you want to know what your heart is made of, if you want to know if there's pure love in your heart, wait till you're squeezed a little bit. Wait till you're under a little bit of pressure. Wait till you're under a little bit of stress and see what comes out. Is it love that comes out? Is it patience and kindness that comes out? Is it, uh, is, is it preservation and honoring, right? Or is it all the other stuff that's listed in there? I want to be a person who, under the press, experiences and exhibits love. I want to be a person that when I'm stressed, love is pushed out. And here's, here's the beautiful thing, and, and I, wanna, I don't want to keep you on the hook the whole time, right? Because all of us are going to fail at this from time to time. We just are. Just know that. And if you don't know that, now you know, right? Sometimes we won't do it right. Sometimes we will not, we will not be pressed and squeeze out love. We'll squeeze out envy. We'll, we'll emit anger. We'll emit impatience, right? We'll emit dishonor of others. And, and we have to know that, look, we need to be shaped by love. We need, to be, we need to be transformed by love. But we also can rest in the grace of the one who was under the squeeze, who got pressed. If, if, you, remember, if you remember the end of the story of Jesus' life, you know where he ended up. He ended up in, a, in, a, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane is? It's a, it's a garden of, of olive presses. Some of you know this. It's a garden of olive trees. And in the, amidst these olive trees are these massive stone presses. And they put the olive... They put the olives on the press, and they put a stone, and they roll the stone over it, and it presses the olive, and out of these olives comes this olive juice. And Jesus is experiencing this kind of pressure, this kind of strain at the end of his life. The night before he was going to be crucified, he's in that garden, and the Scripture says that he was, he was pressed, right? In fact, so much that it, it says, as it were sweat, as, as, as it were great drops of blood came out of him, right? And you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to exhibit other than love, he wanted to say, let this cup pass from me. I want to be self-seeking in this moment. I don't want to be self-sacrificing. That's what Jesus was saying. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. But then he said the words, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
He said, let me go ahead and be squeezed, and out of me comes sacrifice. Out of me comes love. Out of me comes mercy. Out of me pours grace. And he allowed himself to be put up on the cross, and the love was poured out on you and me. So I just want you to know, if, if, if today you're under the press and love is not coming out, just know that you are the recipient of God's love this morning, right? We are the recipient of God's love, and when we receive it, then it transforms us, and we become the givers of God's love, the givers of God's love. This is the last thing I want to, to say. As I look at Jesus' life, and I see the way that he exhibited love, and there are also people in my life right now that, um, that I see exhibiting love in, this, in a very similar way. Not perfectly like Jesus, but there are people, and they're usually older. There's a guy I was with this week, and some of you may know him. He was a professor at Covenant Seminary. His name is Jerem Bars. Jerem Bars is uh, retiring from Covenant Seminary, and I've known him for several years. And I don't know, I, I'm not with him every day, morning, noon, and night, but every time I've been around this guy, love comes out of him. You know, even under pressure, love comes out of him. And I look at people like that, and I go, man, I want to be like that. That's my goal. My goal is that under the press of my life, as I grow and mature in the faith, that I grow more and more and more in love. That I become a person that love comes out. So the question is, how do we become that? How do we, if that's what you want, which I believe if you're a follower of Jesus, please tell me that's what you want. You want to be a person that love pours out of. You want to be a person with pure motives. You want the juice of love to pour out of you when you're squeezed. How do we experience that? Paul tells us at the very end, he says this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. (laughs) You know what he's saying? He's saying, I haven't always been a person that love came out of. I was sometimes an immature Christian. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. He said, but when I became a man, when I grew up into the faith, when I started maturing into the faith, he said, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And then he says this. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. In other words, he's saying like, we see God, but we only see, we only see him as like in a reflection. We don't get to see all of, all of the glory of him. We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. He said, we're getting closer. We're getting, now we're here, but then we're going to be there. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am currently right now fully known. Right? And now these three remain. He said, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. My last line that I want you to get. If you want to grow in love, get closer to its source. If you want to grow in the love of God, if you want to experience the love of God on your life, if you, if, you want, if you want to be a person who exhibits this kind of love, if you want your motives to matter, if you want to be a person that pours out love, then get closer to the source of love. Draw closer to that source. Last, last, last little story, and I'm closing. When I was a little kid, I'd ask my dad to take me camping. We lived, at this point, we lived up in Lancaster, Ohio. We lived kind of out in the country. And I wanted to go camping with my dad. My dad didn't like camping. He was not a camping guy. Glamping, but not camping. He was not his thing. So he said, no, 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 I'll take you camping. And this was at the beginning of the summer. And the summer went by, and we didn't go camping. And then the fall came. And I was like, Dad, we got to go camping. He's like, no, no, I know we will. We'll go camping. But we didn't go camping in the fall. And winter started to set in. And I was like, Dad, you said we were going to go camping. 
And he was a man of his word. So he said, man, shoot, it's winter. Okay, let's go camping. So we packed up our little bags and our little, our little eggs and spam. Anybody ever eat fried spam? Amazing, amazing. Um, and we, 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 went up to, we went up to this little cave up in the woods. And I, I was having the time of my life. As I look back on it, I realized my dad was sacrificing himself <laughs> for me. And we're, 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 in this, we're in this cave, and it's freaking cold. I say cave. It was like an overhang. It was like a rock that just hung over the ground. It was cold. So we built a fire. And as that night progressed, it got colder and colder and colder. And we had to edge closer and closer and closer to the fire while we slept. I remember my sneakers, my tennis shoes, the rubber on the bottom of my tennis shoes melted. I was that close to the fire, right? But we needed the heat, so we had to get close to the fire. If you want to experience the heat of God's love, you got to get close to the source of God's love. You got to get close to God. You got to edge up to him and say, God, I need to, I need to be closer to you. I need to spend some time in prayer. I need to spend some time in your word. I need to spend some time, God, loving you and being loved by you. I need to spend some time with other brothers and sisters who are pursuing you, who will help nudge me closer to the flames. I need to be uh, serving you. I need to be with other people who are serving you so we can be nudged closer to the flame. We need to get closer to the source if we want to experience the power of love. So here's, here's how I'm going to close. Last verse says this, 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. You're not close enough to the flame. If you don't love, you're not close enough to the flame. Because what? Because God is love. He's not just the source of love. He is love. He is love. God is love. If you want to be a person that loves, get close to the source. Draw close to the source, the fountain of love, the flame of love. Get close to God. Spend time with him. I'm going to put up one more slide, and then this is the last exercise I want you to do. Take a look at this slide. If you see anything on there that you might struggle with from time to time, are you ever impatient? Are you ever unkind? Are you ever envious? Are you ever boastful? Are you ever prideful? Are you ever dishonoring of others? Are you ever motivated by self-seeking, self-seeking desires? Are you ever easily angered? Are you edgy? Do you keep records of wrongs? Do you ever delight in evil? Are you ever happy when a bad thing happens to somebody? Are you ever neglectful? Are you ever mistrustful? Are you ever hopeless? Do you ever quit easily? None of that is love. And so what I want us to pray as we close today is I want, to, I want us to pray. I want you to find yourself up there. Don't, don't try to grab all of them. Just grab one or two or three. Just grab a couple and go, God, I want you to transform that part of me. I don't want to be envious anymore. I don't want to be mistrustful anymore. I don't want to be easily angered anymore. I don't want to be impatient anymore, God. I want that, I want that juice to be transformed by your love. I want to be filled with your love so that I can exhibit it, so that I can pour it out because my motives matter. Would you just close your eyes with me as we close today? And I want to pray for you because I just feel 
that all that this applies to every single person here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know this is you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you still know this is you. You know that your motives are not always pure. And God can God can reach into your life, pour his love into your life, and then you begin to pour his love back out of your life in the same way that Jesus poured out the love in the garden the night before he died. Father, I pray today that those of us who know we need your love and that we need to be animated, motivated by your love, I pray today that we would open our hearts and just trust in your love. We would receive your love. We would accept your love. We would be transformed by it, God, so that our love, your love, pours out of us. Way beyond our love. I'm talking about agape love, the the love of God pouring into us and then pouring out of us through the way that we serve others, the way that we act towards others, the way that we think towards others, the way that we feel towards others. Transform us, God. Let us be Let us be emissaries and ambassadors of your love because we are so filled with it that it just pours out of us. Let us be transformative agents in this city, across this country, God, by the power of your love. When other people are motivated and animated by things that are self-seeking and striving, Lord, to pursue their own agendas, we're doing nothing but pouring out your love to the people that we serve. Transform us, God, from the inside out. We love you. We praise you. We want to get close to you. To your glory we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen.